Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I guess I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Dino the Sunshine Boy Debra was a violent thug by the age of 12, jailed at 19, ruthless multiple killer at 23, and murdered by 25. He was described by his family as having a heart of gold, but others saw him as a murderer, standover man, drug dealer and kidnapper. In 2009, motivational speaker and self-help author Jeffrey Locker was stabbed to death in his car in East Harlem. What initially seemed to be a robbery gone wrong turned out to be something entirely different. Aliens. No. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our interesting early stuff. Our controversial and amazing early stuff. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. 52-year-old Jeffrey Locker was seemingly living the American dream. He was a self-made millionaire with a beautiful wife who was active in the PTA. The couple had two sons and a daughter, nice cars and a fancy house in an affluent Long Island, New York neighbourhood. Jeffrey was an inspirational keynote speaker and life fulfilment counsellor, specialising in helping people move to the next level of success in their personal and business lives, much like yourself, Barney. Yeah, absolutely. He was also host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show, Vibrations for Success. Pretty sure that's how... You can't say vibrations for success without really leaning into it. Yeah, you've got an explanation point on the end of it, haven't you? Probably three. 
Jeffrey gave presentations on handling workplace stress and co-authored a 1998 self-help book called Teachings for a New World. The book's description on Amazon reads, This exciting self-help novel is a heartwarming story of human potential that ignites a spiritual connection between you and your loved ones. What would your self-help book be called, Barney? Well, Tara, I think it would be called How to Have Your Cake and Eat It Too by Barney Two Cakes. Oh, do you have one, Tara? Mine's called The Gift of Probing. It's about how aliens can help us overcome our fears of probing with more probing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm up for a probe. Yeah, ready? From an alien. Alrighty, Not from see. you. Unless no. You, unless you are an alien. Because of Jeffrey's career and lifestyle, what happened next would surprise everyone. On the morning of July 16th, 2009, police found the body of Jeffrey Locker slumped over the steering wheel of his black 2007 Dodge Magnum station wagon in East Harlem. His hands were tied behind his back and he had suffered multiple stab wounds that pierced his heart, lungs and liver. His ATM card was also missing. It was unclear what someone like Jeffrey would have been doing in a neighbourhood like this in the first place. His business was more likely to see him on Wall Street, giving inspirational seminars to stockbrokers and the like. Jeffrey's wife Lois had reported him missing the previous night when he failed to return after a trip to Manhattan. Lois said that her husband had called her earlier, saying that he'd stopped near the Triborough Bridge as he had a flat tyre, but someone was helping him with it. In the wake of Jeffrey's brutal murder, many shocked people came forward with glowing tributes to the self-help guru. Family friend Richard Pope said, Jeff was an extraordinarily spiritual man. I've never seen him raise his voice. I've never seen him get angry. The locker's neighbour Mary Tassett told the press Jeffrey was a hands-on dad with a cracking sense of humour. She said, he was a magician on the side. He'd come to the classroom and he made all the kids laugh. A magician, hey? Yeah, a part-time magician. Mm, I like it. News of Jeffrey's slaying left some of his clients bereft. They'd come to rely on him for assistance with their personal lives after going to him first to get some business advice. The cops thought the circumstances of Jeffrey's death didn't seem like a simple street robbery, so they wondered what was up. Their spidey senses were tingling hard. Oh, aliens. Not enough probing. They went to Jeffrey's house to speak to his family and felt something was off about their reaction to the news. I mean, they weren't exactly high-fiving each other or popping champagne bottles, but they didn't seem particularly surprised to hear of his violent death. After Jeffrey's murder, there'd been considerable activity on his ATM card. After reviewing CCTV footage and doing some good old-fashioned detective work, police were able to discover a prime suspect in the murder and arrest him later that day. Six-foot-four African-American Kenneth Miner was a 38-year-old unemployed computer technician and a drug addict with a lot of form. Ooh. He'd been seen on video withdrawing $1,000 from several different ATMs using Jeffrey's bank card. When the cops caught up with Kenneth Miner and interrogated him about his involvement in Jeffrey Locker's murder, he told them an unbelievable tale. Kenneth said he'd met Jeffrey on a street corner in Harlem when he was selling drugs. When he asked Jeffrey what he wanted, he apparently told Kenneth that he was looking for a gun. Kenneth told him to fuck off as he was sure that Jeffrey was a cop. Jeffrey did indeed fuck off, but returned soon after and resumed his conversation with Kenneth. 
When Kenneth asked him why he wanted a gun, he claimed Jeffrey said it was because he wanted Kenneth to shoot him. He said Jeffrey told him he'd driven through the streets looking for someone to do a Kevorkian. Now, he meant that in reference to Dr. Jack Kevorkian, who was an American euthanasia proponent who was known for publicly championing a terminal ill patient's right to die by assisted suicide. The only thing is, Jeffrey was not terminally ill. Kenneth thought this was barrel of monkeys batshit crazy and didn't take him seriously, but he decided to try to make some money off Jeffrey by saying that he'd get a gun for him. Kenneth got $60 and his phone number from Jeffrey and said that he'd call him back. Then he hot-footed it to the nearest crack dealer and got himself nice and high. Figuring he could probably keep the scam going and get more money off him, Kenneth called Jeffrey and they arranged to meet up again. When Jeffrey asked Kenneth to kill him once more, Kenneth said, Why don't you go jump in the river? There's one right there, gesturing to a river across the street from where they were standing. That's right. Put some rocks in your pockets. Yeah. Mm. That's when Jeffrey told him he was deeply in debt, soon to be bankrupt, and his death couldn't look like a suicide or his life insurance policies wouldn't pay off and his family would be broke. Kenneth said Jeffrey's sadness reached him. Jeffrey gave Kenneth his ATM card and PIN number as payment for killing him. Kenneth claimed the murder went down in a, well, very unlikely way. He said he initially attempted to choke Jeffrey with a length of wire, but it kept breaking. So Jeffrey suggested that he use a knife that he had with him in the glove compartment of his car. Kenneth stated, he said to hold it against the steering wheel with the blade facing him. I did that, and he leaned forward into the knife three to four times while I held it. He then told me to move the knife over to the other side where his heart is. I moved the knife over, and he leaned forward into it a couple of more times. At that point, he was alive and breathing heavily. I got out of the car and threw away the knife. Kenneth admitted that killing Jeffrey was not exactly a good life decision, but said he was innocent of murder. Kenneth added, Locker said it had to look like a robbery so his family can get what they deserve. At first the police thought this story was the biggest load of bullshit they had ever heard. The press didn't believe it either, figuring Kenneth was telling outrageous porky pies just trying to beat the murder charge. His own lawyer felt the same way. But, and it's a very, very, very big but... After Kenneth's arrest, new evidence emerged that strongly suggested he was telling the truth and Jeffrey had in fact been searching for someone to kill him. Investigators found out that Jeffrey had tried earlier to get someone to do the deed when a witness named Melvin came forward. Well, that's a fishy name, isn't it? Melvin, yeah, it's not a super trustworthy name. No. <laughs> Melvin. Apologies to all the honest Melvins out there, if there are any. <sighs> Melvin Fleming had met Jeffrey a few days before his death. Melvin had asked him for a quarter and Jeffrey gave him five bucks. Melvin was so grateful, he asked Jeffrey if there was anything he could do for him in return. That's when Jeffrey told him he was looking for someone to kill him. Melvin was a con man who saw an opportunity to fleece someone when it presented itself, so he said he could help him out. Jeffrey told him that the murder had to look like a robbery and that his body needed to be left where it could be found. Melvin hung out with Jeffrey for two whole days while they drove around looking for the best place to do the deed. During this time, Melvin conned Jeffrey out of over $6,000 and he thought the whole thing was kind of funny. 
Eventually, he gave Jeffrey the slip and scampered off. Records from the months before his death showed that Jeffrey was drowning in debt. He was living well beyond his means and he'd made some poor investments. A court had recently ordered him to pay back $121,000 that he'd made investing in a $300 million Ponzi scheme organised by convicted conman Lou Perlman, the boy band manufacturer and manager of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Wow. Is that Ron Perlman's brother? No, no relation. Rhea Perlman's uh, dad, though. Really? No. (laughs) Despite his story proving true, Kenneth Miner was charged with second-degree murder. In court, Kenneth's lawyer said that Jeffrey's mounting debts were evidence he was planning to kill himself, and he hired Kenneth to kill him so that his family would be able to collect the $12 million in insurance benefits that he'd recently signed up for, which obviously they wouldn't be eligible for if he committed suicide. Yes. Now, all of this begs the question, did Jeffrey's family know about his deadly plan? Ooh, did they? Well, Melvin and Kenneth both say that that he told them that his family knew about it and they were cool with it. Good enough for me. Investigators found evidence to suggest that this was true, including Jeffrey's research on funeral arrangements and emailed instructions to his wife on how to manage their finances after he was dead. There were also records showing the millions of extra dollars in life insurance he bought in the weeks before going through with his scheme. None of the messages received by Jeffrey uh, said anything like, how about you maybe sell all of your cars, your mansion, your watches and expensive stuff and just get a smaller house in the outer suburbs and, I don't know, maybe take the train to work from now on. Do you really need 12 ivory back scratches? Well, yeah. Nobody asked him if he'd considered downsizing a bit, but it wouldn't have mattered if they had. Losing all of his money was Jeffrey's idea of deadly failure. In a July 5th text message recovered from Jeffrey's phone, his son Matthew spoke of Jeffrey making a video for Jeffrey's 13-year-old daughter Alison. The text said, Remember you won't be there to give her away or any of that. It's an important milestone for a woman getting married to also have her father. So you could also add in hers that you'll be there in spirit giving her away. So he was going to make her a video and his his mm. son's like, hey, here's a good thing for you to put in your watch this after I die video. Mm, ghost dad. Jeffrey's computer had a message that was sent to his wife, Lois, on March 27th. It said, I want you to promise that to the best of your ability, you will let them hang out to dry when I'm gone on any account that is only in my name. There'll be no money in the estate for them to come after, and they can threaten you all they want. If there isn't money in the estate, they can huff and puff all they want. The lawyers say they have no grounds to do anything to you. He's talking about after he... Killed himself. He really is, isn't he? Despite the evidence, Jeffrey's family denied all of this. After news of the messages hit the media, Jeffrey's wife Lois spoke to reporters outside the family's lavish two story home and said, I wish you could talk to the hundreds and hundreds of people my husband has affected positively. Talk to them instead of reporting these innuendos. Mm. I believe those innuendos are actually called facts, Lois. Yeah. When the case went to trial in February 2011, the defence argued Jeffrey's death was a case of assisted suicide and the prosecution disputed these claims and argued that Kenneth was akin to a contract killer. The court case came down to the question, did Kenneth actually murder Jeffrey Locker or did he passively assist in his suicide? New York state law classifies causing or aiding someone in a suicide as manslaughter, but Kenneth Minor was charged with second-degree murder. 
Prosecutors argued that murder was murder, even if the victim was complicit in it. They readily agreed that Jeffrey did indeed ask Kenneth to help him die, but said that Kenneth went beyond assisted suicide when he stabbed Jeffrey seven times. Kenneth's defence lawyer claimed Jeffrey pretty much hypnotised Kenneth into killing him with his secret motivational speaker powers. Look into my eyes. You are getting very killy. <laughs> yeah, no, that um, seems a little far-fetched. It does a little, doesn't it? Mm. Jeffrey throwing himself onto the knife seven times is clearly bullshit too. Uh, the medical examiner ruled that the cause of his death was homicide due to the tight circular pattern of the knife wounds on his chest. Also, the steering wheel and dashboard of his car were clear of blood, which couldn't be possible if Jeffrey had hurled himself into the knife over and over again. No. Now, of course, the defence had their own experts who said the opposite, but I can't see how that's possible. The jury eventually sided with the prosecution and Kenneth was found guilty of second-degree murder. On April 4th, 2011, he was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Jeffrey Locker's family didn't come to court at all and have never spoken publicly about the case. Not going to court is very unusual. That is a bit odd, isn't it? Like, not even once. Hmm. According to 48 Hours, it's unclear if his family got $8 million of the life insurance, as the insurance companies won't say either way. And Lois was suing a company for $4 million after they refused to pay out on a policy Jeffrey took out just six weeks before he died. Jeffrey Locker's widow praised the murder verdict as a step in the healing process. Her brother, lawyer Stuart Sorota, read a statement Lois had written which said... We always had great confidence in the criminal justice system, the jury and the New York City District Attorney's Office. In October 2014, Kenneth Minor accepted a plea deal that reduced his 20-year sentence to a 12-year sentence. The deal still carries the murder conviction, um, so the charge wasn't actually reduced to manslaughter. Um, but time served is also counted in this 12-year sentence. Kenneth took ownership of his actions, saying... Every choice I made, I made myself, and I accept responsibility for what I did. But he maintains what he has said all along. Jeffrey Locker wanted to die. Mm, what an interesting story. Have you ever heard of anything like that? No, it sounds like a movie plot, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, Barney. Yes, Tara. What time is it? It's true crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. You didn't ask me if I was itchy. Maybe I've just lost interest in your itchiness. But I am a little bit. <laughs> oh, you want me to get one of my back scratches? No, I can reach it. Thank you very much. Because I have two. I know. And we have one here from Trevor Christensen. And he writes, My wife is the true crime buff, but she finally converted me after eight years of lovely wedded bliss. <laughs> Suck up. <laughs> I drive for Uber and Lyft in Minnesota, and my radio in my Ford Focus died last summer. This event eventually got me to try podcasts for a regular break from music while at work. 
Mm, good choice. My true crime nerd time is something I watch regularly. It's BuzzFeed Unsolved. This is on its own channel on YouTube now and can be found on Hulu as well. That's how I say Hulu. Mm-hmm. Hulu! The two hosts of this show, Shane Maggi and Ryan Begara, bring unsolved true crime stories to the screen with their own personal flair. With new episodes on Fridays and a Q&A on Wednesdays, they cover long unsolved stories. Besides the stories about JFK, the boy in the box and the Black Dahlia, Ryan and Shane have a supernatural show they do as well. And as ghosts and Bigfoot aren't real, they are calling that unsolved as well. Oh, really? Not real? Who do you think brings your Christmas presents, Trevor? Yeah, and who do you think brings the Easter eggs? Yeah. It's ghosts. Yeah. The fun that these two have while still diving deep into facts and theories bring a brighter look into true crime. So to wrap it up in a cute whittle bow, <laughs> that's how he wrote it, BuzzFeed Unsolved or Bun is my recommendations for those looking to scratch that true crime itch. See, he cares about itchy people. He does. At least after you're done with Sexy Barney and Russian Tara. That mm. is true. That is true. Yeah, hey, baby. Hey, baby. This has been Trevor. The Trevolution will not be televised. <laughs> Well, actually, those secret cameras that I have in your house, Trevor, mm-hmm. that have been broadcasting for the last six months. We've been watching you in the Beg shower. to differ. <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time. Rethink your terrible life choices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tara, that's not, happen- that's not helpful. I know. I feel sick and I'm being a dick. No, if you really do want to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to do it. Do it. Yeah, please do. I, I really love them. I get some good ideas from them. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. All right, Barney, two cakes. I believe it's time for you to get murdery. So you want to hear the story of the sunshine boy? I really do. All right. Dino Dibra was born to an Albanian Muslim family on April 18, 1975. Dino grew up in the rough-as-guts multicultural Melbourne suburb of Sunshine. Sunshine's good years as a factory town were far behind it as manufacturing took a dive in the 70s. Unemployment rose and Dino joined a generation of kids who grew up in poverty. This is what Mark Chopper-Reed says about Dino growing up in Sunshine. Well, Sunshine is just a western suburb shithole. 
They all got around sunshine. They would have grown up together, playing Space Invaders together, gone to movies together. Everyone saw Scarface in Sunshine. They all saw Scarface the movie. Everyone pretended they were Tony Montana. (laughs) Say hello to my little friend. We did a whole episode on Chopper. We did indeed, episode 38. It's Mm. a cracker. It is a cracker. For Dino, it was all about being part of the gang, and he started early, at the tender age of 12. Dino's gang called the Sunshine Boys. Well, that sounds like the Partridge family kind of thing, driving around in a rainbow bus, singing happy songs. It does sound kind of happy. It wasn't. No, no, it was not. (laughs) Well, the Sunshine Boys were made up of friends from primary and early high school, including Andrew Benji Veneman who would later kill multiple times, and Mark Malia, who would become a feared drug dealer and enforcer. Ten years after the formation of his gang, between 1998 and 2010, 36 criminal figures would be murdered in the Melbourne gangland wars. Dino Dibra's gang, the Sunshine Boys, would account for nearly a third of those headstones. The boys were mentored by convicted killer, ferocious fighter and martial arts champion Paul Calampiatus, He gave the boys skills in thieving, robbery, hydroponic marijuana growing, car rebirthing and punching the living shit out of people. Dino and his knucklehead mates idolised him and would do anything for him. Every good wannabe gangster needs a mentor and Dino certainly had the ideals Fengali, meaning one who manipulates or controls another by mesmeric or sinister influence. Mm, kind of like how Cambo controls us. Yeah, how our relationship with Cambo. <laughs> He's our Svengali. Oh, yeah. The Sunshine Boys were from mixed ethnic and religious backgrounds. As I mentioned earlier, Dino Dibra was Muslim Albanian. Benji Veneman was Greek Cypriot and Mark Malia was Maltese. However, under the guidance of Paul Calampiniatis, they would soon become fiercely loyal blood brothers. And they had three rules. One in, all in. So if you're giving someone a punch, the other guys are going to come in and kick the guy a few times. Mm -hmm. Number two, always chop in your brothers. In other words, share the spoils. Number three, never betray a brother. Oh, and break the blood bond and you're fucked. Those sound very much like the bloody murder rules. They're pretty much exactly the same. Two years later, they would arrive to school well after class started in designer tracksuits, gold chains and cause trouble. Getting into fights with other students and even teachers, they would all eventually be asked to leave. You see, it didn't matter that they were kicked out of school because Dino and his mates were already making more than their parents did. By 15, Dino Debra and his gang were well and truly on the police radar. By 16, he was facing theft and reckless driving charges. One police officer who fought with him during an arrest had his car exploded shortly after. What a coincidence. Police had seen Dino's kind before and knew that thugs like him only respected one thing, so Dino would get regular beatdowns from the jacks, as Dino called them. Chopper was not impressed. He would say later of young Dino Dibra, You see a 16-year-old kid getting around with gold chains and a handgun, you shoot him. You don't let him become 17. He's a very wise man, Chopper, isn't he? Hmm. In 1992, Dino picked up his first conviction for resisting police and escaping lawful custody. His parents must have been so proud. A year later, he was charged with a number of offences, including reckless conduct, endangering life and reckless and unlicensed driving. In an effort to become serious players in Melbourne, Dino and his fuck-knuckle pals started hanging around with the notorious Carlton gangster Alfonso Gadgetani, 
Nicknamed the Black Prince of Ligon Street, Gadgetani had a few murders to his name and was part of the seedy Carlton Crew gang. The gang included the Morans, Jason Mark and their father Lewis, Graham the Munster Kinnenberg and Dominic Mick Gatto. Dino would do a lot of their dirty work, beatdowns and more often than not a spot of kneecapping. But he would always go back to Sunshine for the third rule, always chop in a brother. Yes, Tara, he would split the cash with his beloved Sunshine boys. Sounds like a rainbow flag wielding dance troupe. Yes, it does. That's not a very intimidating name, is it? The Sunshine Boys are here today. <laughs> you know, like you expect them to kind of like do jazz hands the and maybe try and sell you some orange juice. They'll make your troubles go away. They'll shoot you in the head because they wish that you were dead and they just won't care anymore. The Sunshine Boys. The Sunshine Boys. <laughs> well, thank God they're all dead now. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that was. Dino and fellow Sunshine Boy gang member Andrew Benji Veneman were best friends. Chopper would say of Benji, If he was an inch shorter, he'd make a good circus dwarf. <laughs> he was a two-bob little flea. I didn't have much time for him. He was a fucking wombat. <laughs> he was on Carl Williams' side one day. He was on Mick Gatto's side the next. He couldn't make up what side of the fence he was on. Yeah, and then he worked for Carl Williams and he was banging his missus Roberta. He really was. Dino would find out this truth the hard way. One night in 1994, Dino and Benji were cruising the streets of Port Melbourne looking for a car to steal for their rebirthing racket. Their target was a Holden VN Calais. I mentioned rebirthing earlier. For those who don't know what that is... Oh, it's very painful. The gang would buy a record auction. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> the gang would buy a record auction, then steal an identical vehicle for parts, and soon the write-off will be miraculously reborn. Mm. They found one and pinched it. For the boys, it was just another day, until they discovered that the car they had stolen belonged to a policeman, which had a laptop computer in the trunk. Benji was all for selling the laptop to the Carlton crew. The computer contained names of undercover Victorian police operatives. Oh, so wait, it didn't have a password? Or was the password password123? Yeah, that was it. <laughs> That's what all the police passwords are. It's okay, they've since changed it, so I'm all right. Password456. <laughs> but Dino wanted to give some shit to the Jacks. They got the address of a prominent undercover police officer from the laptop and did a drive-by past his house one afternoon doing a nice slow wave out their car window as the copper was watering his garden. Ooh, menacing. The police did not take kindly to this brazen fuck you from the Sunshine Boys. <laughs> Dino and Benji were arrested. Dickhead Dino was put in a cell with another man to whom Dino began to brag about what they'd done. We kill people with the sunshine boys. Smart. Very smart. Pity he was, in fact, an undercover policeman, and so they were charged with Grand Theft Auto. Uh-oh. Grand Theft. Uh-oh. <laughs> but when Benji received 12 months jail and Dino got mere months, the sunshine boys suspected that Dino had gone dog and ratted them out. The sunshine boys were cloudy that day. After Benji served his time, he and the rest of the gang tracked down Dino, took him to a warehouse and tied him to a chair. They accused Dino of being a cock-sucking dog and talking to the cops. Look, I don't know. When you think about the shape of a dog's mouth, I don't think that's even possible. I'm not going to think about that. I'm thinking about it and I don't see how no, it could be done. No. They're very bitey. Well, Dino didn't like being called a cock-sucking dog. Uh, he denied it. But the gang didn't believe him and decided to knock him. 
Shit. But Dino pleaded to Benji. Mate, we've known each other since grade four. Benji was torn, but this deed could not go unpunished. He told Dino he would have to shoot him, and with that, kneecapped him in both legs. Ouch. Wow, with friends like these, huh? Benji then told fellow sunshine boy Mark Malia to drive him to hospital. Mark reportedly said, What am I, a fucking taxi service for dogs? I would like to be a taxi service for dogs. What do you get paid in, Pats? I get paid in snuggles. <laughs> With the punishment dealt out, Dino, Benji and the rest of the Sunshine Boys would resume their sunny friendship. <laughs> only, only Dino couldn't walk because he'd been kneecapped. But, and it's a big but, cracks were starting to form. Oh, I see what you did there. With the mid-90s behind them, it was time for the gang to spread their wings and make a move into the lucrative party drugs market. They made thousands. But Dino liked the product too much and developed a serious coke habit. He became detached, delusional and paranoid. His psychotic episodes led to violent and reckless behaviour. Often he would be so coked up he would get police officers to chase him just for fun. Oh, that doesn't sound fun. In late 1996, after a string of traffic offences, Dino was finally sentenced to 18 months imprisonment and given a five-year driving ban. He was condemned by a judge for having one of the worst driving records he had ever seen. Prison, or Villain University, did not phase Dino and it did nothing to change his ways. Dino was back wreaking havoc in the streets again by mid-1997, chalking up further convictions for unlicensed and careless driving and jumping bail. On November 23, 1998, Charles Heglier, known as Mad Charlie, was killed at his Caulfield home. Dino was implicated in the murder and it is believed that it was drug debt related. He wants the thrills, doesn't want the bills. Mm. Mad Charlie had some serious form and was one big man in the amphetamine trade. He got his nickname after biting someone's nose off in a fight. Mad Charlie had been charged with attempted murder in 1997 after a gun battle with some other crims, but charges were dropped after witnesses refused to testify. What do their memories suddenly just get a little bit flaky? I can't really remember because I don't have a nose. Yeah, sorry. Ever since my nose got bitten off, I've had a terrible time remembering that evening. Mad Charlie was the best friend of Mark Chopper Reed. Years later, Chopper would tell media just weeks before his death at the age of 58 from liver cancer that he and Mad Charlie bashed and hanged serial pedophile Reginald Edward Isaacs together in 1978, honouring a pact by all the inmates to kill him. Until then, Isaacs' death was thought to be a suicide. Dino was starting to accrue some serious enemies. I wouldn't want to be on the bad side of Chopper. No, I mean maybe now. By the late 90s, two of the city's biggest players in the drug scene were the Moran brothers, Jason and Mark. They were also responsible for bringing in a young Carl Williams into the drug business. Ah, we did an episode about Carl Williams too. We did. Well, that was number 53. Ah, that's a good memory. (laughs) I'm an excellent driver. Dino joined Carl and began dealing in Melbourne's clubs, but he was using almost as much coke as he was selling. If only someone would bite his nose off. (laughs) That would be helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he was using a lot of coke and was beginning to lose what little control he had left. Benji would split his attention between the Carlton crew and Carl Williams. In 1998, at the Dome Nightclub in Paran in Melbourne, Dino was dealing drugs and had an argument with a couple of bouncers. Quick to lose his temper, Dino shot them both. One copped around in the leg, another bouncer a bullet in the gut. 
Dino was never charged and his chaotic and unpredictable crime spree continued unabated. Without bait. No? Sans bait. (laughs) In March 1999, police raided Dino's crib and found a cannabis crop and two loaded guns. He received bail on the condition that he report twice daily to police. But despite being under police surveillance, a month later, Dino, being Dino, did more Dino shit. (laughs) In August, Dino decided to kidnap standover man, Mad Richard Malatovich, in broad daylight. Did he bite someone's nose off too? Well, no, Mad Richard, he's got another story. Okay. I will tell it. Sure, if I ever shut up. Dino and his gang called him Spade Brain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course they did. You see, Chopper Reed had taken the top of his head off with a garden spade in the yard at Pentridge Prison. Now, this is the way Chopper tells it, Tara. Mm -hmm. I took the top of his skull right off like that, lifted it up, you could see the brain. (laughs) He said he'd fell over and hit his head on a rock. So they said to him, well, if you're not prepared to make a stab against Uncle Chop Chop, we're not prepared to get taken to court. So did he have a big scar, like a visible one? Right across his forehead. Oh, wow. Yeah, spade brain. Oh, spade brain. Okay. So Dino had met Richard, um, spade brain, in a pub, (laughs) and he'd bragged to them that he was now a bodyguard to the drug dealer Mark Moran. That's a pretty spade brain thing to say. Well, that was all it took, Tara. They lured Richard spade brain out to their car with a promise of selling him a quality gun. Saying to him, you could pistol whip a cunt all day long and it still flies straight as a die. Oh my God, that really has to be the slogan for a gun company. (laughs) That's a great quote, isn't it? Wow. I mean, that's when you know you've got yourself a quality gun. That's right. (laughs) Right. right. I mean, I need to pistol whip cunts all day. It's just my thing. And you still want to be sure that it will shoot straight up. That's right, yeah, yeah. sometimes, some of the lesser quality ones, they'll like shoot bendy after that. Well, yeah, I want assurances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So after opening the trunk to show him the gun that you can pistol whip a gun all day with, (laughs) they pushed him in and handcuffed him. We'll hold him for ransom. Moran's a fucking loaded, Dino told his pals. As they drove back to Dino's house, Richard escaped. You see, Tara, there's an emergency opening switch, so he just popped the boot and jumped out. That's a good thing to do. And if there isn't one, um, kick out a taillight and wave your hand through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to get attention from people that you're locked in a boot. Yeah, that's good advice. Mm. So they stopped the car, broad daylight, people everywhere, and they chased the poor fucker down Footscray Road. And that's a busy road. It is. They gave him a few punches and stuffed him back in the trunk and drove on. When they got to Dino's place, they rang the Morans and asked for $80,000. The Morans told Dino to get fucked. (laughs) Dino tried to negotiate and down the price went. And suddenly it's $5,000. But the Moran still told Dino to get fucked. So you see, the thing is, Tara, Richard Spadehead Milotovich had been lying. He didn't work for the Morans at all. Oh! Also, little did they know, the police had the house bugged because of the Dome nightclub shooting. Oh. The police storm the place and find poor old Richard beaten to within an inch of his life and still in the trunk. Was Spadebrain okay? He did. He survived. Oh, good. He did survive. Dino Dibra and two other men were charged with the kidnapping and the assault of Richard Spadehead Milotovich. In May 2000, the following year, Dino became the prime suspect after Spadehead was murdered. Oh, leave Spadehead alone. Then, only two months later, Dino was involved in a gun-crazy road rage incident where a motorist was shot five times. He survived. Oh, shit. Well, he's pretty tough. I think they're 22s. You know, low-caliber pistols. Right, got to get yeah. right up close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what am I 
God, the way I speak, what is? I think listeners understand, but anyone else uh, in my life would probably be a little, a little gun shy of me. I, I think they're not. They're good for pistol whipping cunts, but maybe they don't shoot so straight. Well, maybe they don't. Meanwhile, Andrew Benji Veneman had become one of the go-to killers in the Melbourne underworld, happy to work for whichever gang could afford him. To some police officers, this whole time was referred to as the self-cleaning oven because the criminals were eliminating themselves. Oh, wow. Self-cleaning oven, huh? That same year saw the final demise of the Sunshine Boys. The final performance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everybody, we're going to have a great show. Dino had demanded loyalty from Benji in a stupid fight with another member of the gang, but he had overplayed his hand and Benji and the Sunshine Boys' old mentor, Paul Calampagnatis, decided not to back Dino. It all ended for Dino on October 14th, 2000 in a small weatherboard house in Cranbrook Street, Sunshine West. The house was known only to his close associates. He would go there to relax with his friends, do business, grow dope and get high. Oh, and watch the X-Files. Probably. Probably. That's the right era, right? Yeah, it's about the right oh, era. The truth is out there, Sunshine Boys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Dino felt that he it was his safe haven. It was probably called the Sunshine House. The Sunshine House. <laughs> In sunshine. But by this time, he had quite a few enemies and he double-crossed quite a few people in his circle. Dino had been to a barbecue in the afternoon with his family and he was planning to go out later that night. I can smell his aftershave from here. <sighs> I'm sure he's he a He would bit, have packed it on. A little bit heavy on the cologne there, Dino. Oh, You're dead now, son. 25-year-old Dino Dibro was gunned down execution style in his front yard. His body was riddled with bullets. Police believed the two killers were Angie Benji Veneman and Sunshine Boys Svengali Paul Calampagnatis. To this day, Dino's murder remains officially unsolved, with a police reward of $100,000 remaining unclaimed. In 2002, Benji was a prime suspect when Paul Calampagnatis was murdered. He was also involved in the abduction, torture and killing of another of the Sunshine Boys, Mark Marley, in 2003. So much for that blood pact, huh? Andrew Benji Veneman was then killed in 2004. So, yep, they're all dead. Self-cleaning oven indeed. Yeah, all Carl Eames crew, that's all gone. All the Carlton crew are gone, except for Mick Gatto, I think, yeah. He's yeah, still going. I think that's about right. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. It was a bloodthirsty tale indeed. It was a rollicking story, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, when it, when you're talking about the Sunshine Boys, you know you're in for a fun ride. Well, that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I know I've touched on all this Melbourne underworld stuff before, but I, you know, some of these minor gang members, I might do a few more of them. They've all got their own little story to tell. They really do. They really do, and they're um, they're kind of funny. Yeah, I do. And tragic, of course. Yeah, very. I mean, he's so young, 25, Jesus. Yeah, his family were absolutely devastated. I saw some footage of them appealing to the public for information about his murder. Well, they probably and, didn't know all the stuff he was up to. Oh, yeah, he was a golden boy to them. And like I said earlier, they just said he, he was just a lovely man and had a heart of gold. Well, he was probably really sweet to them. Yeah. Hmm. I have a question for you, Tara. 
Why don't you go and get... <laughs> yes, Barney, what is it? What is Aussie as? Ah, funny you should ask me that because I've changed it slightly because okay. it wasn't particularly accurate Not succinct all the enough? Time. No, I've, I've made it less succinct but more accurate. Okay. Aussie as are short stories of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Oh, I like that. Yeah, good. Would you like to hear one? I would. Do you think my voice will hold for it? I hope so. <laughs> what the fuck was that? That was my voice holding for it. I thought you were being probed. Oh, yeah, pro-probe. When it comes to aliens, I'm pro-probe. You, oh, And then you'd quid pro-probe. <laughs> quid pro-probe. <laughs> you probe oh, them back. Yes. <laughs> I'm quid pro-probe with aliens. I probe them back. Yeah, it's a nice exchange. It's how we get to know each other. That's Different right. species, you know. Don't do it with animals with teeth. No, no, it's got to be consensual. Yeah, it has to be. Probing has to be consensual. They I'm have just to, putting that out there. Yeah, yeah, because they have to be like beings who are capable of making a spaceship. So they're into stuff going up their butts. Well, no, so they're obviously like clear thinkers and they're pretty smart and together and they'd be able to like consent or not consent. To well, the have probing. you seen Mars Attack? Yeah, I kind of yawn at that. Yeah, it's a bit boring. It's a bit dull. Now, Barney, Aussie culture is a very unique thing indeed, don't you think? I do. Now, in most countries, dropping a C-bomb will offend everyone in hearing distance, but not here. In Australia, at least half the people in hearing distance won't bother to clutch their pearls as they recognise the word cunt can be used endearingly and not just by iced-up, drunk and drug-fucked bogans having a screaming brawl in public. Oh, it's great to see you, cunts. Any of you cunts want a drink? Well, yeah, that's that's how we met Scott at the meetup we had in Melbourne oh, in November. That's right. Well, look, if you don't believe me, I've got some proof for you, listeners. A Sydney shop owner decided to use the word in a sign designed to warmly welcome people to his store. Um, his shop's actually got a great name. It's called The Fishing R Us Shop. So The Fishing R Us Shop on Parramatta Road in Auburn has a sign on its door that says... Open, you sick cunts. Apparently there was a bit of a shitstorm in a teacup over the sign, with some people taking offence at the swear word. Dirty, dirty swears, don't say them. But the owner of the shop refuses to back down, saying the word cunt is Australian as the word Vegemite. I agree, and I lament that I'm not an angler, because I do want to go in that shop because of that sign. Yeah, well, maybe you could get some for your, one for your front door. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the man who owns this store, his name is Yaya Tamir, but he's probably nicknamed Ya Cunt, um, and he told the Daily Mail, the term is used as something you'd call your mates and should not be seen as offensive. We removed the sign yesterday, but it'll 100% be put back up. We're a family-run business that's worked hard for years and the sign was not meant to offend. Your cunt is under the impression that a competing business issued the complaint to piss him off, especially since the sign had been up for donkey's years. Now, if you need any more confirmation that the word cunt is simply a part of Aussie culture, like fairy bread, shoeys, thongs, getting dacked and croc attacks, then let's talk about this 2017 court case. Let's. A Sydney fella who's renowned for wearing messages on a sandwich board was fined $500 for offensive language after calling ex-politician Tony Abbott a cunt. The word he actually used was cunt with an upside down at symbol. Ah, oh, yes. People got it. Sausage sizzles were held to raise funds to help Danny Lim... 
probably nicknamed Limbo, pay the fine. But he was like, stuff that up, you clacker. Let's go to court. Bring it on, cunts. He lost his first appeal, but on his second attempt, he was successful, with Judge Andrew Scotting finding the word wasn't offensive. Nice one, Scotty, you bloody legend. In his judgment, he stated, The prevalence of the impugned word in Australian language is evidence that it is considered less offensive in Australia than other English-speaking countries, such as the United States. Sorry. Politicians and their views are often subject to criticism in public. This is an essential and accepted part of any democracy. So there you have cunts. Not offensive at all. Fuck your democracy and fuck your cunts. (laughs) We love you cunts. Uh, Oh, uh, I can hear those reviews being typed out now. Tara's despicable. Oh, did you know she said the C word and she didn't even seem to feel terrible about herself? Let's change that. Look, we'll feel terrible later about pretty much everything we've done today. Yeah, but not that. But not that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, try and teach a dog to suck a dick. Okay, maybe edit that bit out. (laughs) Try and teach a dog to suck a dick. (laughs) You fuck. You fuck. (laughs) Now, there's some worldly advice. Oh, God, they're right about me after all. Look, words to live by. Words to live by. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, because we're thirsty, there's a PayPal donate button there too. We'd also like to thank our Facebook moderator team, um, led by the lovely Lorraine. So, yes, uh, thank you, Hilda and Holly Marie and Josh as well. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarabay. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, You can uh, follow us uh, through our Facebook page and join our Facebook group. We're on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. And don't forget to stay tuned um, after the closing music to hear the outtakes because they're the funniest bit. My little boy Dexter loves watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And he, he, he adores it. He just watches it over and over again. Yeah. Except for when they go into space. No, not into space turtles. Well, it didn't will suspension of disbelief for him. He said, this is ridiculous. They're in space. That's just stupid. I don't believe this anymore. Really, that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles who live on pizza, down a sewer, and fight crime, um, like, that's all cool. But the whole, like, going to space, they're oxygen breathers. They die. Well, that's right. It was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I love Dexter's brain. I want to eat it with a nice Chianti and some leather beans. Oh dear. <laughs> I knew you'd hate that. Did you hate it? I'm not sure what orifice that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, and I was the one doing it. Wow. They're all a blur. They're all a blur right now. All the orifices have turned into just one big one. Oh, like a cloaca. Oh, I suppose so. So they one cloaca to rule them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fucking big bird, aren't you? Lord of the cloaca. A tall bird, sorry. Yes.
that's better. Vibrations for success. No, you've got to really... Vibrations for success! Try it with a question mark on the end. Vibrations for success? Yeah, it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Vibrations for success. I quite like it that way. Hey, baby, vibrations for success. Oh, my God. Didn't someone complain about how often you say, hey, baby? Yeah. And to that person, we'd both like to say, hey, baby. Hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hunt you down and write, hey, baby, on all of your social media accounts. Because <laughs> we have so much spare time to oh, be like yeah. running ridiculously fucking pissy pants vendettas like that. Yeah, I'd put my pissy pants on and I'll do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't have any spare pants. Actually, I might just take them off. <laughs> I'm going to take my pissy pants off and write, hey, baby, all over your shit. Wow. That's um, sounding a little more sexual than I think you mean. Well, no, it's not sexual enough. Oh, well, so therein lies the problem. Yeah, hey, baby. This exciting self-help novel is a heartwarming story of an heartwarming story. A heartwarming. That's what happens when you half commit to an accident. Yeah, yeah. You've got to put it in some dog food. <laughs> It'll, it'll worm you, the cockles of that's your That's how you get the heartworm tablet down. You put it in some dog food. You put it in a self-help book that's and how just I, get reading. That's how I eat mine. <laughs> <laughs> or I put it in a fish taco. Let go of the fish taco. Put your hands up and step away from the fish taco. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> he just rammed the whole thing in his mouth. Oh, um, um, crunch, crunch. <laughs> I'm so frightened right now. Crunch, crunch. Oh! Oh, so stinky. <laughs> nom, nom. Yum. <laughs> Police were able to discover a prime suspect in the murder and harassed him. Harassed him. Harassed him. It's a feminist statement. Harassed him. <laughs> I harassed you in the name of all women. And fish tacos. I've got two back scratches. One upstairs, one downstairs because, you know... I'd find that I'd be downstairs and I'd want to scratch my back, but my back scratcher was upstairs. So now that I've got two, it's all good, Tara. Wow, you're like the everyman that everyone can relate to. I don't need that. I can touch any area of my back with one of my arms. Really? You've got very long arms, though. Well, they're proportionate to my body. I have a long everything. They're proportionate to an orangutan. <laughs> and yet you're the one who resembles one. Oh. Well, I never. How dare you. You know what? There is actually one case, um, Sharon Lepector, or I can't remember quite her surname, where she wanted to be like tortured to death, and a guy did that. Yeah. Um, Obscura have an episode about it. And it was that guy who wanted to get eaten. Oh yeah, the guy who wanted um, the cannibal to eat him and cut off yeah, his yeah. penis and fry it up. Though I'm seeing it more like a John Candy, Steve Martin movie where Steve Martin approaches John Candy and says, "You know, you have to kill me," and they and they keep bungling it. Yeah, I guess that I'm not sure. I see it as being a little sadder than that. But. And, and then, the, but they spend all this time together and they become really good friends. And John Candy proves to Steve Martin, but no, you should stay alive and face the consequences of your debts. Yeah, and, and the best a, and the best gift of all is the gift of friendship. That's right. <laughs> it's a feel good buddy film. Yeah. Okay. No. I like I like that version. And then they end up like living out in the outer suburbs together and having heaps of fun, but not lots of money. They have to have a budget. That's right. And they stick to it. They get rid of all those extra ivory back scratches. Yeah, they eat a lot of noodles. Noodles, yeah. Noodles are good. And they do homebrew. Homebrew is yeah, a great it's idea. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah. 
and it's something you can you can spend time with your friends doing. Yeah, you can teach your kids how to make teach, toilet wine. Teach your kids how to make <laughs> toilet wine. Well, this has always been my mis- misstep in my parenting plan. It's not too late, Barney. It's not too late. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I should teach them how to make toilet wine. I agree. Maybe they could teach me. <laughs> they could teach you how to do something in the toilet, but I don't think it's anything you need to know more about. Ten years after the formation of his gang, between 1998 and August... 19-2006. I think I had an arse in my mouth. Ah, wouldn't be the first time. Twelve. mouth. Twelve arses in my mouth. That's why you have such shit breath. Uh, what? Nothing. Is that why you keep offering me gum and toilet paper for my mouth? (laughs) (laughs) And air freshener. Right, is that why you hang a little fucking scented tree off my nose? That's why I try. Ten years after the formation of his gang, between 1998 and August 2010... I, I don't need that month there, do I? No. No, it's, just, it's, it's like just put there to trip you over. It really was. <laughs> a hurdle. An yeah, op- we don't do that. We walk around those. A word obstacle. <laughs> a wordle. A wordle. <laughs> I'm wearing one right now. Yeah. It makes me look skinny in my world. I know. It gives you an hourglass figure. <laughs> if an hourglass was shaped like a pear covered in shit. <laughs> like sands through the Barney glass. Put the, pull, either pull the anal beads out or put them in. I'm not sure what your problem is. I've got is. 12 in already. I can't fit any more in. Well, maybe pull six out and see how you feel. <laughs> Empty. <laughs> <laughs> Half full. Uh, uh, is your butt I mean, half no, full or half empty? Are no, you a pessimist? My, my butt's half empty. <laughs> <laughs> you are a pessimist, aren't you? I am. The Sunshine Boys have a question for you, Barney. <laughs> Why don't you go and get fucked? Well, I can I can name a few reasons. I, I really need to finish this podcast. Oh, um, maybe after? I, I am in my house, so if anyone's going to leave, it's going to be you. Yeah, when it's convenient for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit surly today, aren't you, Tara? A little bit surly. You're cold. I'm sick and I feel shitty. So you're surly. <laughs> I wasn't surly before I was weak. All right. Now, because I've had to be so strong and brave and bold to push through, I'm becoming a surly cunt. Don't talk to Tara because she's a little bit <laughs> grumpy. <laughs> That's what Cambo says from the ball pit. It does. And they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 